Pixel Sift is proudly supported by Murdoch University School of Arts. Creative industries are changing all the time, and at Murdoch University School of Arts, you can study a degree that'll keep up with the fast pace of modern media. It's designed in consultation with industry and business, and the new Bachelor of Creative Media allows you to specialize in sound, graphic design, screen production, photography, or games art design. Who knows? You might end up as a guest on Pixel Sift at some point in the future. You can build your portfolio and showcase your creative potential and learn some cross-disciplinary skills that the modern workforce needs. You can apply for Murdoch's Bachelor of Creative Media now. Search Murdoch University and head to the website for more information. Murdoch University School of Arts, proudly supporting Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to Pixel Sift. My name is Gianni and every week we, well not every week, every fortnight we do this thing called Pixel Sift where we uh, chat to game developers and we talk about the issues in the game development world that is making the circles in in the chat on the, you know, on the internet. People are chatting online these days. It's a new phenomenon. Get on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <how>, <laughs> Uh, that that snickering in the background you can hear is our guest for today. Uh, his name is Ed Orman. He's from Uppercut Games. Ed, thank you for joining us and thank you for laughing at my joke. <laughs> I'm laughing near your joke anyway. That's <laughs> close enough for me. Look, someone's yeah. got to do it. Yeah. Someone's got to do it. Otherwise, it would be me. Uh, I'm also joined by my co-hosts, Sarah and Scott. Thanks for coming back from PAX. I know it's hard to, okay. to leave Melbourne, um, but you've come back. So that's always great. Yeah, reluctantly. You had to drag us back, but you know, we're here. That's what counts. Pack shirt as well. Today. Oh, I should have worn mine today. Uh, now, Ed, we're going to be talking all about your game, City of Brass, a little bit later in the show. But what else are we checking out today? Uh, yeah, we'll be taking a look at the future of artificial neural networks and games. Uh, the potential of these systems might extend beyond just giving you something a little bit more challenging to shoot in Call of Duty. Well, let's see where the future holds and what where it's going to take us, let's shall see. we? Let's see. Mitch, what's Discord? Discord is an online chat service that most gamers use. Incidentally, you can also use it to talk to us at pixelsiv.com.au forward slash Discord. Yeah, you can talk about uh, episodes, you can talk about upcoming topics, you can probably even coerce Mitch into playing a game with you online. That's not going to happen. That is going to happen. You're doing it. I'm saying that's happening. Sorry. Yeah, well... Join Discord. You should grow your beard back. pixelsiv.com.au forward slash Discord. You idiots. Uh, artificial neural networks, as I was just going on about before, are computing systems inspired by the biological counterparts found living in brains. These types of systems are able to learn, in air quotes, by doing tasks. But what would happen if such systems were applied to something like a game's AI? Interesting. Seth Bling, who you may not know from online, uh, is a streamer and a, a programmer, and he's been applying uh, neural networks um, to the Nintendo classic, games. Classic yeah. game, Super Mario Kart. And he also did hmm. it with Super Mario World as well yes. previously. Um, and by showing the uh, this neural network 15 hours of video game footage, he was able to teach uh, the the program to to play the game at a competitive multiplayer level. Um, managed to picking up gold in a couple of the cups and silver and a couple of other ones. And, you know, the more that it kind of goes through, this sort of uh, technology is going to be applied to more and more aspects of, of game development. And game playing. So who knows, you know, maybe we can see Scott with his uh, excellent battlefield skills. Watch that for 15 hours and you'll have a, you know, Robo Scott to fight against. 
Um, it's a really inter- it's a really interesting uh, uh, topic, and there's a lot of potential for for this. Um, what what do you guys think about the uh, the topic of adding this sort of neural networks and AIs into the games that we uh, all enjoy? It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Mario Kart because I was looking at some articles earlier today, and one of them referenced people, you know, in racing car, you know, games having you know the developers actively. Um, take you know the game they play the game through do it quite well then they show that to the neural network and then the neural network from there learns how to play the game and becomes very good at racing and that could definitely you know really interestingly change the way that we use ai in games when you've got you know um either you know you're just looking at a single player solo game and having that kind of learn and adjust and you could teach it to do different things depending you know potentially you know you could have it be particularly good or particularly bad you could maybe difference your levels you could have the cars maybe you know even try and bash into other ones potentially like there's a there's a lot that you could do there that maybe you know you could do it better than than current ai i'm no ai expert though mm. but it would be very interesting to see where this goes some of the really good uh, applications that i've kind of thought about um especially with the battlefield type thing is you know you're filling out the rest of your squad with actual players that can do fairly well uh you know and read the field of play and etc um, that would be great, especially with online play when you have, you know, say if you're playing competitive and you have dropouts and it screws everything up. Like imagine if you had like, a, you know, a, not just a run of the mill, but a fairly decent kind of AI to come in and fill your gap. Um, you know, that's, that, I, I would love that. <laughs> it saves so many terrible cases. Ed, you're currently <laughs> making a game that's uh, procedurally generated. Do you see the potential for using this sort of learning um, neural network to, to help you make a game that looks more like it was created by a person? That's that's actually somewhere where I'd like to see it go. Like I, I obviously I watch those Mario videos too, and and watching an AI play a game is one thing, uh, but I can totally see running AIs just across even say the field of level design um, and getting them to learn how, you know, the top ten games from the last ten years did their three dimensional level design, feed that in, and and maybe they can actually extrapolate out those rules mm. and start creating content for games. That that's far more interesting to me is creating the content than playing it, um, because I think, but you know, to use Call of Duty or anything like that, the real danger there is, it's very very easy for those things to get better than humans in those spaces. I think, um, so you might fill out the roster with your AIs, but eventually the AIs are going to be filling out their roster with you. Yeah, that's very true. That is like the uh, the other side of it that I feel. Uh, and you're right with with the uh, possibility for AI to get into you know designing things is just incredible, and it's a whole new world after that, uh, after the fact. But um, one something I thought of is you know your harder or your more chaos modes in certain games. You know, it, it, you, your AI would be a lot more intuitive and be able to actually figure you out instead of you figuring out the patterns of the boss and and beating it. It'd be the other way around. It's like it'd figure out your your habits and your patterns, and you'd have to switch it up and actually be, evolve as a player as you're playing. It just it, it brings in just a whole new barrel of a fish. <laughs> I was reading some stuff that was kind of referencing that. It was looking at you know um, these networks in game situations, in which they did actively they would evolve during the throughout a game to counter whatever the um, the other player was doing, whether that was a human or another AI. And that was really interesting that it was consistently and it was actively it had learnt a certain pattern. But then as you put it in a position and it was like a live test, it kept learning as it going and it kept evolving and changing to try and counter you. And it would be really interesting to see that because I've noticed there is a big trend in the kind of the want for games to be more immersive. We have VR, we have VR mods for games that previously weren't in VR. And, you know, I was recently watching a video of Alien Isolation with a VR mod and I was like, damn, I want to play that. It would mm. terrify me, but I want to play that because we we are kind of craving this, you know, games are getting pushed further and further and we want a more immersive experience. Now, take Alien Isolation, VR mod, 
but with that high level of AI, with the alien per se, and then that's like a, a recipe for either absolute disaster or um, my perfect video game. <laughs> but it'd be really interesting to see games get pushed in that direction and maybe if there was any way that we could possibly scale that so, you know, your hard modes end up becoming more like a the AI is way, way, way smarter mm, than before. And way better than yeah, humans. Yeah, way faster at cluing into what you're doing rather than maybe it takes more time to learn your patterns. And it'd be really interesting to see that either in single-player games especially I think would be a really interesting direction because everyone goes on well yeah let's let's have an ai on our team for multiplayer but how you know like a lot of people want more single player stronger games and ai is a huge factor in that, a lot of games so it'd be cool to yeah. see that i find a lot progress. of times the single player stuff can get a bit tired and haggard mm. really old like you'll play through it once and that'll kind of be it whereas with this with an intuitive ai like that you know you probably wouldn't have that sort of thing you it would be a lot more uh, realistic i'd say what i think would be it really interesting sorry ed go for it I was just going to say, it depends on what levers you give the AI to pull, I suppose. Like, sure. Like you mentioned, with uh, with City of Brass, we're doing procedural level generation. Um, so that's, an, I think, a, probably an, a, an easy-ish area for it to go into. But with it actually providing challenging and fun-to-play enemies, like I think it, it'd be probably pretty easy to get it to, to create an enemy that you couldn't beat. But getting it to pr- create one that was a challenge, you know, like an enjoyable challenge, that's... That's that's a challenge in itself, you know. A lot of the time we spend making AIs hamstrung in some way so that they're exploitable because that's that's the challenge in a lot of games is how do I what, – what is the weakness of this AI and how can I exploit it? Um, so you can't just – I wouldn't say that you could just plug one in and just let it go because it would just annihilate players ultimately. <laughs> Maybe when they become, well, you know, you hamstrung them for for the beginning and then they become self-aware and they're like, no, I want to be the best Call of Duty player in the world <laughs> and uh, there's nothing that you can do to stop me. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's scary. I that, think it really, movie there. It, I think one thing that's really interesting is that uh, where a lot of these neural networks are being sort of tested out is sort of online and in a chatbot sort of space where they're actually trying to do sort of semi-Turing test style things where you have a, a chat uh, function where you try to determine whether it's a, a bot on the other end of the thing or if it's a person and they're getting better and better at um you know blurring that line between what a, a human is and, and what a robot is and maybe things like mmos where you have a bunch of npcs that are running around and the game becomes more like you know a west world rather than mm. a world of warcraft where you have a character that follows you around and you have an adventure with that character uh, versus you turning up to that character and they say, go get three pelts or whatever and then run yeah. back, you know. There is that sort of potential there to have uh, characters that are, you know, much more... Playing a role. Yeah, playing yeah. a role. Mm-hmm. Like it is an actual full-on role-playing game. And yeah, I do love are- some Westworld. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, with the, 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 what you're saying there about being able to distinct, distinguish between AI and humans, uh, with the, uh, the Murray Flow video, I was able to distinguish between the four that he's got at the start there. I could tell which one was the... Uh, which was his dad playing, and which ones were the AI. I mean, it it, it did take me a second watch, but <coughs> you could figure it out. Um, I do know that game very well, so that might be biased. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, uh, while I was doing a little bit of research, um, do, are we all um, familiar with the game Go? Yes, the so, uh, little uh, board game. Sure. So, uh, I don't the, know much more about it than that. that. It doesn't, you don't need to know more than that. Uh, anyway, not the, Pokemon Go. <laughs> not Pokemon Go, no. The, the original Go. Um, so, there was a team that made a program um, of deep neural networks and tree search um, using a search algorithm uh, that they called AlphaGo. And it was able to achieve a 99.8% winning rate against other Go programs and actually defeated the European Go champion by five to one. Uh, five to none, sorry, five nil. 
Um, and that was the first time a computer program had defeated a professional player in the full-sized game of Go, um, a feat previously thought to be decades away. Um, so we are, I, w- I wouldn't say close to, you know, the, the world we're talking Robot about. Robot annihilation, is that what you're trying to say? No, but we're definitely, ta- <laughs> we're definitely taking leaps and bounds in it. Uh, and I think this kind of uh, thing is a lot closer than we may have suspected previously. If you're a fan of AI, like I am. I am so much. There is, um, you know, there's the different classes of uh, sort of intelligences that they talk about with artificial intelligence. And they talk about uh, specialist uh, AIs, like the one that AlphaGo that played that game. And they're very good at playing that, but they're probably not very good at having a conversation. No, right? making, making coffee. Yes. Um, <laughs> and as they get more advanced and you get to have more generalist AIs, they're the ones that you could basically throw at any problem. And like a person, give them the set of rules, they'll work out how to do that uh, that task. And that's when we really need to be worried, yeah. I think. But um, yeah, that's uh, it's a really uh, sort of fascinating um, way of uh, sort of building up these things and actually a potential to make games, as, as you mentioned, Ed, as well, that there is a huge potential to have games that are, are built with uh, a, an intelligence against it and it makes the makes small teams much more more powerful for yeah. making these, these games. So, well, Even even back um, 10 years ago, people or programmers were using AI not at, within game development, not as, a, as an enemy, but as a stress tester. You know, um, when you can't maybe put a multiplayer game live and you want to have you know ten thousand users play through it as quickly as possible, then you just put a bunch of as smart as you can make them AIs run through the level like it just as well as as much like a player as you can make them work, um, and you know generate heat maps, see where things die long before you actually get human players into that. I know I'm trying to remember which pro uh, which project was using that, but I'm sure multiple projects have used it since. I um, saw an example of this actually, an Australian uh, company that probably most people would know, um, Mighty Games, were using a, a an AI playthrough for Shooty Skies and exactly that. They were using the heat maps to see where things were getting repeatedly killed and I actually thought it was just a demo loop that someone had recorded, but they actually oh, yeah. had it set up and it was playing its way through the game by itself. Um, really sort of fascinating uh, bit to, to, uh, to talk about. It so. is fascinating stuff. Look, uh, there's plenty of potential there, and uh, we're not going to be destroyed by the AIs just yet. We'll keep uh, on top of that for you. We've got plenty of time to, um, <laughs> to to jump right now into our next topic. You know, there is multiple ways that you can subscribe to Pixel Sift. Oh, yeah? How's you, that? You could subscribe on your podcast player of choice if you like audio-only versions. Like Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts? Or even Google Play if you're in the US. Or you can jump on Twitch and you can give us a follow. Or on YouTube if you like the video versions. Wow, that's awesome. I didn't know we wanted so many things. Yep, and you'll get a handy little notification as soon as there's a new episode for you to watch or listen to. Wow, I'm going to do that right now. I'm sure you will, Mitch, because you're a good boy. Kitsch. <laughs> Joining us on the line is Ed Orman. He's from Uppercut Games. Uh, he's based in ACT, um, but he's got a team that's kind of spread around. Uh, Ed, you're working on a game at the moment. It's sort of in early access. Um, what is uh, the game that you're working on, uh, City of Brass? Uh, I've been trying to come up with different uh, different descriptives, but so I'll hit you with the Raiders of the Lost Ark meets 1001 Nights because it's slightly different to Indiana Jones meets Arabian Nights. <laughs> so... It's it's uh, you know on topic here. It is procedurally generated, um, and it's a rogue light, not a rogue like, uh, which just means that it's got some aspects of rogue games like permadeath, um, you know, losing everything and starting again, and learning systems rather than learning levels. And that's what the procedural generation helps us with. Is no no two levels are the same. They're all generated at runtime, 
Um, and the major focal point is the whip, uh, which I can go on about ad nauseum. Um, but we've really tried to create a tool that is a super tool for the player. Uh, you know, it's our gravity gun. You get to use it for as many things as we could possibly cram onto it. So, um, so yeah, you're traipsing through this Arabian Nights level, trying to pick up as much treasure as you can, using your whip to disarm enemies and swing through the air and trigger traps and uh, dying horribly multiple times over and over again. Definitely did that multiple times this morning, multiple times on the floor at PAX. Um, but I think the, the the interesting thing for me was that there was that quick sort of turnaround. You know, you died, you were back again, you were straight back mm -hmm. into it, and you died in exactly the same place as I did, as I kept, uh, I don't know, those spike traps on the floor, not... <laughs> Uh, not the best at seeing those. Spatial awareness. I know. Just looking straight ahead. Got to kill all the enemies. Don't worry about anything else. Uh, Ed, how did the game kind of come about and how did you start working on it? Uh, so we did a game called Submerged in 2015. We released that. Um, and that was a very different style of game. It was a, a narrative-focused, non-combat game, no death, no threat of death, um, really just ex exploration um, with a little girl in a in a boat in a sunken city, and um, that sunken city was a giant giant thing, kilometers on a side, and uh, it was all handcrafted. And there's only six of us, so we late in the production we we kind of realized that it was really unwieldy to make any changes. Like we couldn't be very flexible with with taking on any feedback um, because it was handcrafted. So. We came out of that project uh, and decided that we really needed to do something with procedural generation for the kinds of levels that we wanted to create. Procedural generation was was hopefully going to be a good match. So, so the very starting point was, hey, let's do something in procedural generation. The setting came later after we'd already been uh, down the road of, you know, what kind of game do we want? And in the middle there, we were toying with, well, we want to make a first-person shooter. We want to try and leverage some of the mechanics that we have seen in other games and that we worked on in Bioshock um, 1. I always, I think I've related this to you before, but I, I'd always thought that there was a lot of great nuggets of design in there that hadn't really been exploited by other games since. And what, they go all the way, all the way back to System Shock 2 even. What are some of those nuggets that, um, you, you know, you really wanted to bring into this game? Well, so the the whip uh, is actually part of that. So Bioshock had the the famous one-two punch, which was the electro bolt and uh, wrench. And the idea was that you would stun an enemy with electro bolt, and then you'd switch to your wrench, and and you had a little window there while they were stunned to hit them. And if you hit them with a wrench in that time, you know it was a it was a knockout. Whereas if you were just wailing on them with a wrench, it would take much longer. Um, so that idea of combinatorial play between actions. Uh, was definitely a seed for us, and that, and that's what the whip does. It's it's very much a um, an enemy manipulation tool in a lot of ways because you can use it to stun them or or disarm them or trip them over or drag them into traps. Um, it's meant to be used not just it, it can't do damage, but it's meant to then be used in combination with either your sword because you've stunned them or with the environment um, and various other things you can find in the environment. Now, I saw a quote where you said uh, it was the most versatile whip ever created. Um, I'm, I'm standing by that. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> now, did you set out to, um, with the whip, did you build things around it? Like, did you come in with the whip as an original idea or did that kind of evolve as you started building the game? Uh, it wasn't It wasn't the very first mechanic. Um, we We were probably, I think we had the sword working 
um, like very, very early on. Doing damage in games is generally pretty easy to, to get set up. And we had the basic idea of what we want to build, but um, I think we we're on a, a drive back from Sydney, having gone to see Apple about another one of our games, and, and the idea of the whip just came up. We, we, with games, you, you really want to try and have a, a USP or a unique selling point. I hate that phrase, but you know, you want to have something that people can look at and go, "Well, that is different," and I haven't seen it done like that in another game or i've never seen that before um and so the whip rapidly became as we were discussing it we were just we could just immediately see all these different applications um and it just snowballed from there and you know once we decided that it was going to be the thing then you know then you start engineering the game towards it i do think the game is really unique um like you said it has that arabian nights even for me i it, like summoned come some kind of skyrim uh first person shooter style um but i got a big like uh, medieval vibe from the art style as well is, uh, is mm-hmm. that just me <laughs> uh it's it's more you know we're we're, we're making it up yeah okay <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of reference uh obviously the arabian Nights stories have been around for a really long time um and there's a lot of really really gorgeous paintings that have been done for various books that have come out um and so that's most of where we were looking at uh and some of the some of the more ridiculous pop culture stuff like um I don't know, obviously Aladdin, uh, but stuff going back, you know, 30, 40 years. So there's a lot to draw on there for this, the visual style. I don't think we were going for medieval so much as... I think um, it was just those skulls. You mean like medieval, the PlayStation 1 era game? Yeah, sorry, sorry. The PlayStation oh, 1, I should have oh. been more specific. It's very not ambiguous medieval, term. Though. Yeah, not medieval yeah. times. The game. Yeah, right. No, that's... Um, you know, part of the setting is that everybody who lives in, lived in the city has been cursed. So, yeah, they're, they're, it is populated by all of these, I'm not saying zombies because we don't have to say zombies. <laughs> no, they're no, just, no. They're, they're cursed uh, inhabitants. And, yeah, they've been. They're neural networks. They're, also- they're neural networks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> zombies is so 2012. Yeah. That's right. It'll never go away, man. Zombies will be back again no. next year. I, I yeah. think that's the idea behind zombies. Isn't yeah, it? they just yeah. keep coming back. <laughs> that was awful. Sorry. Yeah. Now, um, Ed, you've been um, working on games for a while, um, and uh, we've got a question from Arsam Samadi who asks, "What is your favourite uh, parts of game development, and what's your least favourite parts of game development?" Mm, favorite part is initial design where you're coming up with all the really cool ideas least favorite part is production where you're systematically killing every one of those ideas off because it turns out they're too difficult to do (laughs) and um now you talked a little bit about uh pulling designs and and inspiration uh from uh arabian nights and lots of things like that now how do you and the game itself is is procedural as well how do you make the game uh look good and mesh together nicely when you're getting the the game itself to build the levels that people are, are playing every time you play a new level I, I have to hand that entirely to um the artists and programmers because uh they are the ones who have made it look as good as it does and and that was largely um it's important to start out with a goal of what you want to do when you're doing procedural stuff i think it's it's very easy i was i was certainly starting to think it was going to be you know the, the swiss army knife that would solve all problems when we first started on it but we rapidly came to the point where we needed to just have what are we trying to achieve with it um and one of those goals was that it would be a believable space uh there's plenty of procedural games out there which don't strive for believability they just want to have it just has to play differently and it doesn't matter what it looks like which is fine uh, but since we're trying to do a first person game and you know people can see the seams and things when you're up close in first person we wanted to make a space look as not realistic but believable as possible. I was and a- really 
Sorry, please go. That's okay. I'm just going to finish with um, that that is uh, absolutely programming and art hand-in-hand. Programming, um, the the code and the generation system had to work hand-in-hand with the art to make the tiles, um, make a system of tiles that worked together without, uh, you know, revealing those, those seams so often. Now, the game is currently in sort of early access. Um, mm-hmm. What sort of stuff are you trying to, to learn from that process and um, what are you hoping to, to learn from the players who, who play your game? We've already learned an awful lot, to be honest, uh, across pretty much the entire game. Uh, most mo- The feedback is, is generally really positive. In fact, we're at 95% positive, which means it's the, the best game I've ever made in, in Uppercut. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, it ranges from difficulty. We had a lot of feedback about the difficulty curve maybe being a bit too steep at the beginning. Um, uh, you know, inputs, feedback from the from the UI. We haven't had a lot of feedback about the controller yet. It's nice to hear that you were using, but uh, we're going to – next update, I think we're going to be doing a bunch of controller work, so it'll be ready for a bunch of feedback there. So really, early access for us has just been, like, the whole thing um, – because you've been able to play the game since we released it from start to finish, people have been able to get a really good deep sense and understanding of what we're trying to do. And so all of the feedback's actually been really, really helpful. And so for people who are looking uh, for this game, what's uh, who's this game for? Who would want to play this game? And, and what's the, uh, the sort of target market? That's always... That's a killer of a question because, you know, you can compare yourself to there's other first-person roguelites like uh, Ziggurat. Um, there's 2D roguelites like Spelunky, which is one of my favorite games and a big inspiration for this game. Um, so I think it's people who like the challenge of learning the systems um, and, you know, bettering their own skill level so that they, they can progress. I think that's the general appeal of roguelites. Would you say that's definitely aimed towards people that really want a solid challenge or are you trying to, you know, have the game available to maybe like a more broad scope of individuals, maybe people who have never really tried a roguelike before and are curious because they like the art style of yours? Like are you, you know, is it particularly hard or is it kind of just middle of the road kind of hard but, you know, the growing challenge per se? We, we, we go backwards and forwards on this uh, a fair amount, actually, um, and Andrew James is a proponent of the broadest possible audience, and I'm a proponent of a more like more focused audience, and so we're, we're probably going to land somewhere in the middle there. Uh, like the game, thankfully, we've, we've built in a system that lets, lets us make the game harder if people want to. They can self-select. You, you can unlock things called divine burdens, and every one of them and you can turn them on per run. They're basically like mutators. When you turn them on, they change the way the game works, and all of them make the game harder. So we sort of have this fallback, which is we can make the game easier to try and reach more people, and then <clears throat> people who really want a challenge can start to to turn on those divine burdens and make the game even harder. It's definitely a really uh, fascinating game to play, and I found myself kind of, uh, and even at PAX as well, I think I mentioned this to you as well, I felt like I was kind of splashing against the rocks, but I just kept fighting against that thing because there is that real, uh, you know, good hook to it that um, brings me back for, for more. Now, uh, Ed, if people want to find out more about um, City of Brass and, and the other stuff that you've worked on, where's the best place for them to, to go and find out some more information? Just uh, I would hit up the website, cityofbrassgame.com, or just check us out on Steam. We're pretty easy to find there too. And uh, it's definitely worth a sh- worth a shot and worth the play. See if you could do better than I can, because I last about two minutes and that's it. I'm I'll gone. take you up to that challenge. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I'm, I'm like safe mm. bet. I'm not holding myself up as the uh, the pinnacle of roguelite uh, player skill. 
Um, but I would like to see your scores. Well, we'll I'm see. Interested to see. Pixel Civ versus next week, maybe? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it on. That sounds really good. Uh, look, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much for, for joining us for the show. Uh, Ed, it's been a real pleasure to, to learn a bit more about City of Brass. It's out now in early access, and you can find it on Steam. Um, thank you to our sponsors, Murdoch University School of Arts, who uh, help us make this show. Mm. Now, Scott, mm. um, now, if people want to... Uh, find out more about our show and listen to some of the other conversations that we've had, uh, where can they go to? Uh, they can go to many of our social medias, uh, that be facebook.com forward slash pixel sift, twitter.com forward slash pixel sift, twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift, and youtube.com forward slash pixel sift au. And if you subscribe, you'll get a notification as soon as the uh, new episodes come along. It's they'll, the easiest way to do it. Just, just pop, subscribe. They'll pop right into your phone. and you, mad dog. You can see that little little notification coming up there. Uh, big, big thanks to awesome Samadi who uh, helped us with the new overlays for the show this week they are very cool and um, if you want to send us a message and we'll send you his his details uh, that's all we've got time for today but thank you very much for joining us uh, we will see you guys all at next week at some point in the soon. future we'll see you soon on the internet <laughs> yeah, maybe who knows maybe the neural networks will kill us first yeah thanks Ed see you then see you later